always tell people you have to vote what's right for your community, even if that gets you unelected. You're there to represent your community. And if this vote that I took back then to no longer have TFA in HISD cost me the, an, an election, then so be. Welcome to episode 24 of the Truth for America podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Julian Vasquez Heilig. I'm a leader and professor in educational policy. And we have our other two co-hosts with us today and a very special guest that's going to talk about how Teach for America has taken over school boards and what that means for large urban districts and schools. So I'll just turn it over to my co-host to introduce themselves. This is Jameson Brewer. I'm an assistant professor of social foundations of education at the University of North Georgia. And I was a 2010 Metro Atlanta Corps member. Hi, I'm Barbara Veltri. I'm Professor Emerita from Northern Arizona University. And I've uh, studied Co-Teach for America for probably 22 years. Thank you so much. And today we're really going to be able to dig into some topics that we've never covered before on this podcast, because I think this is the first time that we've had a former school board member that can help us sort of dig into the politics. Ms. Davila, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? So I'm Diana Davila. I'm a former HISD, Houston Independent School District bilingual third grade teacher, and also a former HISD board member who served, voluntarily served for 12 years. And I'm also a parent of students that go to Houston ISD. I worked in Houston at the end of the 1990s. Yes, folks, I'm that old. Between 1999 and, and 2001, uh, I worked in the Houston Independent School District, also affectionately known as HISD in, in Houston and surrounds. And Houston, of course, I think is either the seventh largest or sixth largest district in the United States. It's been a hub for Teach for America over the years. In fact, on this podcast, we often talk about the summer training that these core members receive. And when I say summer training, I am using air quotes to send before they're sent in to some of the most challenging situations. And we talk, we've talked about that extensively in the podcast over the years. So Houston's been a hub. It was one of the very first cores that Teach for America had. And interestingly, Barb Veltri, who is one of the co-hosts that just talked about how for seven years when she was at Arizona State, the core members for her area were, were trained in Houston and, and went out to Arizona. So as you can see, Houston's very important. Now, I think many of you have probably been watching what's been happening uh, in Houston, but today we're going to be able to take you on a, a behind the scenes view of the Houston Independent School District. You know, many of you have been have probably kept up with the politics in Houston from the state takeover to the pause of TFA in Houston. There's many other, I think, worthy news stories. 
But let's start before that. Let's let's start with Miss Davila when she is a educator in Houston ISD before she goes to the board. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a TFA campus, to interact with TFA? What were your thoughts? You know, what 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 did they say to you? Kind of just walk us through your interactions with TFA on the school level first. So first of all, we had a principal who was a very strong supporter of Teach for America. And I guess that's one of the reasons the campus was a hub. And so all you ever heard about TFA, so all I ever knew about was all these wonderful things these group of Ivy League graduates were doing within Houston Independent School Districts and other district, other surrounding districts with students of color. And they were they were here to be our salvation as if we needed them. Uh, but that's all you ever heard. And so that was the only perception I had of TFA core members. Once I actually started working at the campus two or three years later, I was asked to teach to help in their summer uh, program that they had there at the campus where I taught. I agreed. I decided that I wanted to learn a little more about Teach for America. And the only way I was going to be able to do that was to actually work with them and see what it was all about. Once I began to actually be more involved and become more educated on their mission and purpose, I was a little taken back to discover that what I had gone to school, because I'm a bilingual education major, and it took me two years in a year of internship to grasp on how to teach children, they were cramming it in in four or six weeks. And these were core members that were going to come out and be my colleagues and my campus. Colleagues that I had had no idea for doing this training, because again, in my mind, according to the principal at the campus, you know, it was just, it was glorified. TFA, again, were the saviors of education, and they were going to come in and turn schools around. And these were the members that were going to do this. So then after a couple of years, I think five years on the campus, I noticed that colleagues that I thought were my friends and were also TFA core members started disappearing. And I was, okay, where where are y'all going? Like, what's going on here? Why are y'all leaving this fabulous campus? This is like the great, great, the best campus to work at. And I was discovering that many after their tour duty is what I call it, was done. They were going off to get master's degree in a different field. So then they were leaving. But the interesting thing is that because we were a, a hub campus, that they were easily replaced with another core member. So we, we, we never had shortage. So if we had 10 core members leave that year, we had 10 that would come in. And that is when I began to realize that, no, this, this isn't right. What's going on here is not right. They're coming in, they're doing their tour duty. And after they fulfill whatever requirement they needed to fulfill in their first two years, they're already sending out applications to other universities to earn their master's degree. And in their third year, they're packed and gone. And I will say this, um, having worked at a campus where I had TFA core members, many of them had minimal school supplies or any teacher supplies or anything in the campus. Once one left, they would leave their stuff. The next core member would take over that classroom with whatever supplies was left from the previous core member, and they'd probably add a little more to it. And then that's how they would kind of grow their classrooms Uh, because they knew it was just like temporary housing and they weren't going to be there for very long. So that was my initial experience with TFA when I was a classroom teacher at the campus I was at. And my campus was a K-8. So we had core members from elementary to middle school. 
Wow. So that this is really the first time that we've heard that the TFA teachers would leave their supplies behind as they shuffled through the school. I, I that that's the first time I'd heard that. So my question, my next question is: so you're you're teaching at the at the school, you know, you're you're seeing them rotate through quite frequently uh, on your on your campus. So you're going to run for school board. Can you kind of talk about how personally how you decide you're going to run for school board? What inspired you? What was that decision like? Two things happened. I was pregnant with my second child. And then I saw the inequities that were happening in my community, which was majority black and brown, low income, one of the poorest neighborhoods back then. And, it, and it's genderfined. So I say back then in 2000, in the 2004, when, 2003, when I ran. And uh, I saw the inequities because one of the other things that I became very involved with was I became a union steward at my campus. And then next, you know, I start doing trainings in different campuses around the city of Houston. And I realized, you know, then equities in supplies, we had microscopes that we would have to go outside and use when the sun was bright and other campuses actually got to plug their microscopes in to see the actual bacteria and cells. That's when I got motivated because I had a child already that was two years old. And here I was about to have my second child. And this was the school my kids were going to go to. Like I wanted my kids to go to HISD because that's where I went. And I still firmly believe you can get a quality education in Houston ISD. But I also knew depending on where you went also depend on the type of supplies. And here I'm coming in with, thank God, then the support of my husband to run. You know, he says we can do great things by both of us being on boards and especially educational boards. Again, my community is known as Second Ward, one of the poorest communities. And so I decided, okay, I'm six months pregnant. Let's do this thing, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I ran and I won. And I was actually surprised because I wasn't supposed to win. Somebody else had decided he was going to run and he had the money and the backing of the former school board member that had served. She decided not to run for re-election. And uh, she was even quoted being in shock. Who was that that school board member, by the way? Who who was it? Esther Campos. Yes. Okay. Of course. I know. She's still around. She just got, uh, they just honored her with a doctorate's degree from the University of Houston. I think she's 90, 91 years old. Wow. Esther Campos was a school board member when I worked for HISD. So of course Mm -hmm. I, I interacted with her quite a bit in those times. Yep. Yep. And so uh, I won. And next thing you know, you three months later, I had a child in March and I would, I didn't skip a beat. Thank God my baby was born during spring break. Off we go to, and I was not only that, I had a child and I was finishing my master's degree in in May also. So there was a lot of things going on at that time. But, you know, one of the things I I will say that I decided to do a, a, a quick deep dive in. So we were in the process of hiring, uh, our, president then, which was um, Dr. Stripling, announced she was retiring. So there was a multitude of things going on. But one of the things that I did my first year was request to see where the TFA core members were teaching. I wanted to know where they were going, especially mm-hmm. because I knew they weren't staying around for very long. And it wasn't to my surprise, because again, TFA core members were my friends. They were my colleagues in the you know teaching and it wasn't surprised to, I was not shocked to find out that the majority of them were in my district. And back then it was District 8. It's still District 8. But that was a district that I was elected to represent. And the bulk of the TFA core members were in District 8. But it's because the hub was in the East End. And that's where the majority of them were at. Yes. And so that's why my first year, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't vote for their contract. 
I, I voted against it. I just didn't see it right that the majority, the rest of my colleagues at the table were advocating and how great they were. Um, I, then I think um, Harvin Moore was elected also who served on the Teacher America board. So we had a lot of advocates, but he, he didn't have not one core member in his district. Wow. So, so I just thought you all are advocating and voting for TFA but y'all don't, y'all are not, y'all don't have the TFA core members. Let's send TFA core members to River Oaks. Let's send TFA core members to Westview. And these are, these are middle class. These are not title one folks. This sounds just like Barb's book learning on other people's kids. <laughs> and I was like, these are my neighbor's kids. And you, but you want to talk really highly at this school board meeting. And yet you have none. And so I could not vote for them. And that's when we had the deep discussion about if we're going to continue to award these contracts, then I think everybody, we should share. Like if there's 100 core members, then it should be shared among all nine districts. It shouldn't be just heavily concentrated in one area. Um, and so they, they had a huge effort the following year to, to diversify and have them more spread out, but still the spreading now were in the black and brown lower income schools. So River Oaks still didn't get a, a TFA core member. Westview still didn't get a core member. Roberts Elementary, you know, those schools still did not get core members. And yet those were where most of the supporters locally were coming from. And a lot of their funders were coming from, too. So it was interesting to see how the outcry for for support and funding come from these communities and yet not one of these communities had a core member at their neighborhood schools. Well, what's interesting, and I, I don't know if you know this, but literally our first podcast episode was with a principal from Sam Houston, literally our first. And she made some very similar points. And what a lot of people don't realize about Houston, we often talk about inequality between districts, but Houston is a prime example of inequality within a district. The, when I lived there, you could go out to Fur High School and you saw a totally different situation than what you might see at uh, a high school, Lamar High School, or some, you know, something inside the loop, so to say, inside the, the highway loop is, was at the time that I lived in Houston, where a lot of the nicer schools were, the River Oaks, the, uh, the Memorial uh, area, et cetera. And so for you to have right away come in as a school board member and identify that Teach for America was clearly distributed in a way that sort of accentuated that inequity that the district was already perpetrating, I think, wow, I, I had no idea. Now, I have a question for you, and I, I don't know if this is relevant here, but for several years when I was at UT Austin, I'd go present at the Research and Accountabilities uh, Forum. And uh, we had written two policy briefs for the National Educational Policy Center. And I would present those briefs when we would write a new update. I think it's called uh, a return to the evidence and I think visiting the evidence, something to that effect. And I would present there. And one of the interesting things that um, I found was that Houston ISD was actually doing its own internal research on Teach for America. Were, were you aware of that research that showed the attrition and, and showed the um, limited impact on test scores? Were you aware of that coming out of the district? So I actually requested that. I also got information because I would hear my colleagues talk about the great things that were happening at the campuses and the results. 
I wanted to see how true that was versus just, you know, an opinion. And so when they actually got the results, it it wasn't surprising to me that TFA actually did have a niche and their niche was in high school. It, it, they bombed in, in elementary and middle school, but that should not be a surprise for those who us who actually go through the college of education and you learn all this pedagogy and, you know, the techniques and everything to teach reading. is not just something you learn in six weeks. Um, that takes work. But we they realized that TFA core members that had a degree in math or in biology or in chemistry were actually successful in the high school level. So when we saw that data, it, they're like, okay, let's, let's, let's try this. So one of the things they tried to do, and I don't know how successful it was, is they did try to recruit more core members in the high school level and see if it would change test score results, of course, because it's all about test scores, and to see if that would make a greater impact. Now, I did not request to see what that looked like because I don't know, you know, it all depended on vacancies. You know, they didn't move people around just to create a study. So if there were no vacancies at that campus for, you know, for a you know, history teacher or a biology teacher or a math teacher, then they weren't about to open them up just to do this study. But I mean, it, it, it did have its purpose. I mean, core members were, but, but what we did see is the majority of them were not going to our high schools. The majority of them were going to our elementary schools. So the study did show that that's where they were the least successful in. Well, this makes some sense, too, because if you think back to Mathematica study, they didn't study elementary. They studied secondary. And not only that, that Mathematica study only focused on math, if I'm not mistaken. and I I could be corrected there. So it makes sense that they wouldn't want to do a study if they already knew that they weren't effective at the elementary level. So I think I find that that really fascinating. And, you know, we actually did a study using Houston data. Um, it's, it, it's a study that I published with Linda Darling Hammond some time ago um, using hierarchical linear models, value-added models using test scores. And in that particular study, we found that if you were a certified teacher in Houston and experienced that you perform better than than Teach for America, because there was a time where Teach for America was arguing that they were better than trained certified teachers. And I, I don't think they're arguing that much anymore. Their ethos might still be that, but I don't think you hear them out there arguing that. I think one of the big challenges that HISD has had is they have more than 200 alternatively certified programs that they've they've drawn from, at least last time I, I saw the data. Like there's a lot of alt cert, not just in Houston, I, I think in Texas in general. I heard a statistic from Ed Fuller at Penn State at one point where 60 to 70 percent of new teachers in the state of Texas, especially in urban communities, were alternatively certified. So while our study did find that, you know, because alternative certified in Texas at the time that could mean you could go online do 30 hours of training and then you were in the classroom. So, you know, 30 hours versus five weeks versus, you know, a traditionally, a traditional program at university of Houston, you can kind of understand why the results would look the way they would look. But I always tell folks, why should you choose between bad and worse? You should, we should be offering in third ward, second ward, river Oaks, Meyerland, wherever it is in Houston. And I don't know if you know this, but Diane Ravitch is actually from, from Houston. Houston. She went to, yeah. So she, she really, really cares about Houston if you've ever, ever talked with her about it. But my, my point here is that, is that 
we need to be able to provide the same type of high level teacher. Now that I'm a dean at a, at a college, we want to train those teachers to be prepared to teach on day one. First of all, a lot of the data that even Jameson and I were talking about on how to improve Teach for America, this goes back to, to core members that were talking to me over years. I mean, one of those areas is place us where we're teaching in field. So it made a lot of sense when you had a high school teacher who has had a math degree, who was also having one prep per day, which would be for math, maybe a little bit for uh, students who might have struggled, but they also had the benefit of a team. You don't go in single-handedly. You have a math or biology uh, chemistry team that supports you. So there was more support for those who were teaching with uh, secondary. And then if you contrast that with the people that were placed out of field, you might have had you know, a women's studies major who's working with third graders or first graders. And then the other data that's so compelling is Sanders and Rivers data, where he talks about the resid- residual ripple effect benefits of teachers. So for example, if you have a Teach for America teacher and you keep hiring them, first grade, second grade, third grade, and you have families who continue in their entire family to have TFA teachers, they're losing that momentum of having one solid teacher who's giving them the skill sets that they need, especially bilingual ed children, when they are in the younger grades. That foundation is so important. And a lot of the TFA who were placed in ELL classrooms, who were placed in, um, unless they were bilingual, or placed in special ed, they were the ones that were having the most difficulty. And they said that repeatedly year after year. You know, I, I know I've said a lot. Um, Houston's really near and dear to my heart. You know, my, my aunt has lived there for, for decades. And I, I visited the community many times over the years. And of course, I'm a former employee of Houston. So I kind of want to segue into some of, the, some of the politics. So can you talk a little bit about how TFA interacts with board members, what they're is their goal to have, you know, to, to have a majority on the school board? Can you kind of just walk us through some topics related to um, how TFA influences politics and specifically school boards? I will say one thing. I mean, my little honeymoon on the school board didn't last very long because in 2016, that's when Natasha Kamrani, who had been the former executive director for the Houston-based TFA, was elected to the school board. So I think once she was elected, she began to see how the dynamics on the school board were beginning to change after myself and Manuel Rodriguez, who also was a newly elected school member, we were both elected at the same year, were both elected and we were starting to, you know, rattle the cage, which hadn't ha- happened for a very long time in the Southeast side. So she was elected. And I will say this, one of the things that I, I share with people all the time is Project Grad used to be pretty big in HISD also back then. And one of the one of her mission was to get rid of it. We're not going to have it in HISD. They're bad for HISD. So it's like eliminating any other competition that could compete against them that would outshine them. And I think they felt that Project Grad was outshining them. So eventually we got rid of Project Grad after it had been in HIC for 10 years. And they went on their own and created their own entity, but they used to be part of HISD. So the honeymoon ended then. The politics on that side started. Remember, I mentioned earlier that Natasha Kamrani was married to Chris Parbik, which is the founder of Project Yes. And Project Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, was founded in my neighborhood school. So my neighborhood school where I lived when I first got married was Brusk Elementary. And the principal 
was had a really go, close relationship with my husband's family because their nephews and nieces had gone to that school. And she came to meet with us one day and said, we have a charter or we have a school that's starting its charter. And now they want to come and take over the campus and they want to push me out. This is where Chris Barbic was at, the founder. And so she says, I need y'all's help. So we all started getting together and supporting Miss Philippa Young, that's her name, um, and saying, no, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen in the East End. We love our school and it's not going to happen. So what eventually happened is Project Yes left created their own charter, took the middle school kids that were there in the neighborhood. And now you see what it is today, uh, a big charter school all over. So, so that was one of the things that, and, and I will say this, when Natasha Kamarani was on the school board, we actually voted to partner with Project Yes while she was on the school board in partnership. And together we opened a middle school in the Southwest side the relation the, that relationship didn't last very long. It only lasted a year. HISD had several requirements, certified teachers, certain professional development, and there was a fight about funding. So that didn't last very long when you start arguing money. At the end of the school year, the relationship ended and we severed ties and Project Yes then took the students that were on the Southwest side and created a campus with them. So we lost those group of students to them back then. So we saw what the impact of one trustee was doing on the school board. And I think that's where the idea came with, well, with the power of one, can you imagine if we elect more? We're talking about 200,000 kids, uh, 300 campuses, then a two, you know, $1.8 billion budget. I think it was 1.2 back then. So it was a huge budget still. So there was, there was a lot to gain to be elected on the school board. So that I think is what really push the needle to try to have more TFA core members being elected again. And then there was the rattling of the cage that we didn't want that many more core members in the district. We wanted certified teachers. And then we had schools that were failing and the threat of state takeover even back then in 2004. So we were really in the hunt for certified teachers, teachers that were coming out of colleges and universities of colleges of education so that was our stronger push. And, and she heard it and she heard us say it over and over again. We had then a school board of educators with a few that were not educators, but the majority was still educated. I think six of the nine of us were educators back then. So we were, I think once they figured, okay, there's, there's starting to be more that are voting against TFA. I think back then it was like a 6-3 vote, still not enough to kill the contract, but enough to start making changes drastically across the district. So, you know, after that, when once she left, they actually elected someone that was part of their executive team also that was on their, their board, the Teach for America board. She came in, so they never skipped a beat even after we lost a core member. So they never skipped a beat. And then after that, we did not see another core member until Ann Sung was elected to the school board. And I forgot what year that was. And then we had our first school board member. And then we had Holly. And actually, Holly was appointed to the school board initially. And that was part of the vote that supported her to come in and be part of the school board. So, you know, she and I still respect some of her philosophy and ideas. You know, we I supported her 
And even today, I support some of her votes, but we I will admit that we had some controversial discussions and they got heated when we talked about the TFA contract. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice that Ann Sung has always abstained from voting for the TFA contract and something they've always held against Ann Sung. But back to the, the, the grooming. So as soon as I was elected, I was invited to this event at the River Oaks Country Club. And if you live in Houston, the River Oaks Country Club is the place to be. And here I am, first time. Oh, my God. It was like, I'm being invited to the River Oaks Country Club. Here's this little immigrant from the East End. So I was really super excited to go. And then after that, I was invited to many more events. And when you walk into the events, as I think, Barbara, you mentioned, the who's who of the state of Texas was there. I mean, you saw it all. And then you realize, oh, my God, like this is a very powerful group. This is a group that can actually change policy and laws in the state of Texas just by looking around and looking at the people that were present. Deep pockets all around, political icons, former and current so uh, that was my first grasp about oh, around everything. And, and it never stops. I mean, these these gatherings and parties, they never stop. They go on year to year. They have this huge fundraiser every year. And the who's who's at those fundraisers. And they're really nice and really extraordinary, really offbeat. And, and all of a sudden, you see a bunch of 20-year-olds, you know, that are walking around talking about changing the world and educating students in the poorest of neighborhoods. What I did see Barbara evolve throughout the years was when back then when TFA was at our campus, it was majority white uh, teachers. Now they had diversified more. And I think that had to do with the push of the school board of HISD back then. We wanted to see more diversity. So all of a sudden we started to see more black and brown core members. And so I think that I think they were trying to make it easier for us to swallow the pill that if they had core members that looked like us, then it would be easier for us to support them in our neighborhoods and easier for us to vote for them. So yeah, and I mean, those those events still continue today. Again, deep pockets to organize huge events and invite you to these nice, very one-on-one meetings or very formal meetings. Um, and and I see it. I and you when you follow our representatives on social media, you see them attending these events. You know, so you know that they still protect their supporters and their funders. And they do it very aggressively. And I'm sure they do it everywhere very aggressively. Quick question. Was there talking about the board members who still served in some official capacity with TFA? Was there no conversation or concerns raised about a conflict of interest when that came up? Yes, there was with two of the colleagues that served on their board. And one of my colleagues then decided to step down from the board but they appointed his wife. So now all of a sudden there was a disconnect. So he figured that's the way we solved that problem. And the other individual stayed on and she said that there was no controversy, that everybody knew from the very beginning that she was a strong supporter of Teach for America and her constituency knew. So because her constituency knew and voted for her, there was no conflict of interest. So that was what they would tell us. I have a question. Since you're bringing up a lot of the um, friends in high places, as I call them, what about when you were on the board? Could you tell us a little bit about following the money trail? I mean, as it is right now, you painted a picture where you could see how a young 20-something core member may, may be somebody who's struggled financially. They get into Teach for America and they have these connections that they they can't in their right mind let go of because... They're connecting with people that they've never had the opportunity to, 
to connect with previously. And so they're not going to run up against someone who introduces them to the governor or the president before they even have a chance to meet the principal, which was the case with many core members. Right now, we see that there's rescue funds available. Last year, we saw money that was going towards to to Teach for America in different locations from the CARES Act. Can you just give us some sense of what you saw as a school board member with following that money trail? So, you know, I I was elected on the board, I think I was 30 when I was first elected to school. So I was in awe. So here I am, a 30-year-old woman that's in awe to be attending these events. And then all of a sudden you see these 20-year-olds looking like they're going to prom. I mean, it really was that serious. And when they were walk in, I mean, it's the wine, the hors d'oeuvres, everything, things that m- most people don't see in everyday life and don't experience until later in life if they ever experience it. So, I mean, and you could see it. I mean, pictures being taken everywhere. You sit down, nice dinners. I mean, it was the whole nine yards. I mean, they left nothing. Everything was very detailed from the program to the speakers. So you're right. I mean, they were meeting Pete, the mayor, and they were meeting, you know, the governor. They were meeting state senators before they met their campus principal. Now, granted, some of these people were coming from a different state, right? But when you announce, like, oh, we have our governor here present today, you know, and and everybody's like, oh, wow, you know, the governor's here. So, yeah, I mean, and you had these secrets, you know, these officers and here in Texas, you know, we're Texas Rangers. So you see these officers with their hats, cowboy hats. And so at first people didn't know who they were, what what their purpose was, you know, and they weren't entertainment. They were there to protect the governor or they were there to protect somebody that, you know, you see the cars coming in with the flashing lights. And so, you know, someone important was attending these events. So, again, a 30 year old woman back then when I was elected was in awe. So I could imagine some of these core members that some were 19, 20 or 20. I don't think I've ever met a core member that was over 22. That's for sure. You could imagine them and seeing this and seeing the wealth of nice vehicles being driven up because, you know, it's all about what you can see too. the nice vehicle, the clothing, the Arnold's, you know, all this, all this was being showcased. You know, they, they, they would announce them as the Arnold's would be announced as the youngest billionaires in the country underwriters. You had Chevron, Shell, big petroleum companies underwriting these events. So um, yeah, it, it didn't take. And for those of you out there, Arnold worked for Enron. I don't know if you know this, but one of the last corporate malfeasance was the Enron, the Tyco. I, I remember when I first moved to Houston, Ken Lay, who I think at the time was a leader of Enron, he was named by the Houston community as business leader in support of education or, you know, an award like that, right? So you could think of the Arnold fa- uh, Foundation as being similar to what goes on with the Walton Family Foundation uh, in terms of education reform. The Arnold Foundation has been an extensive supporter of Teach for America, uh, as has Walton and Family Foundation and some of these others. Well, I, you know, they're not only an extensive supporter for Teach for America, but they're ex- they're a huge supporter of all these other nonprofits that they have that have kind of mushroomed out here in Texas or in the Houston area and their charter schools. I mean, they're they're deep in this um, and funding a lot of these new organizations, Latinos for Education, Leadership ISD. I mean, the, the list of, of nonprofit organizations that where their executive directors are TFA core members. As a matter of fact, all the directors are, are mainly core members, um, have a direct 
contact with Teach for America. I mean, the Arnold Foundations are some of their major funders for a lot of these startup uh, nonprofits. So one of the interesting things, so would you assess all of those organizations that you support as being grassroots organizations, or would you say that these organizations as a part of the larger TFA ecosystem would be AstroTurf organizations? They're AstroTurf. I mean, they're none of them are from here, so none of them were local. I don't think any of them lived in the neighborhoods, right? I think they all lived in, in nice apartments somewhere else, but never really were were the discussions and the the data that they would be presenting at these events. I mean, we have, I I think it's called leadership by leadership something where now they train people to run for school boards and for other elected positions. So I don't know. I think they're somewhere else. I don't think they're just exclusive to Houston or to Texas. So that is one organization that's kind of sprung out in the last couple of years. And they have really not only pushed hard for Houston, but for all the other 34 surrounding districts of Houston and also Harris County, because we live in the county of of Harris County, they have their own board. And I know that they've ran someone the last this last time around also to serve on that board. I think that's an important distinction that we've tried to make here in is that Teacher America at this point doesn't say they're trying to train educators. They say they're trying to train leaders. And so most of these folks are stopping over and then they're trying to provide the resources, the professional development so that their core members are literally everywhere else except for the classroom. Can I walk you now to the big one, one of the pieces of big news about TFA? So I, I don't know how many years ago it was now, but, but you saw sort of in about five, six years ago, there were districts that were starting to finally say, we don't think this is what's best for um, some of the most challenging situations in our district. You saw San Francisco say that TFA is is out. You saw d- districts where TFA was trying to expand, especially in California, say no. And so then you you have this vote about renewing the contract in Houston, and it becomes national news, at least in the education community, that Houston said no. So could you kind of walk us through before, you know, what those discussions were, where you're able um, to kind of walk us through the vote um, and then sort of like some of the after ramifications of that? So I left the school board for four years or five years. I don't remember at this time. And then I ran again. So I, I had this time period where I was not on the school board. And that's when Luis Elizondo was the executive director. I, I looked up the years that he was there. I was not there during that time. I was reelected. Uh, I think I was there for a year when he was TFA, the director of TFA. And then Tiffany came in. So when I was reelected, again, you know, here comes, you know, all the invitations to all these great events. And one of the things that had not changed, I noticed, except for the except for the fact that Dr. Greer had said if you, it, they used to be funded through central. We have a system here, and I know Julian, you know this, Julian. Um, it's decentralized, so each campus gets a certain allotment of money depending on the number of total of students that are enrolled on in that campus. So Dr. Greer said, "Well, if you want to hire TFA core members, then you have to use the money that's in your budget. We will no longer centrally fund Teach for America." So if you have an additional 3000 or 5000 there to support the endeavor of wanting to have a Teach for America core member, then great. But that's coming out of your budget. So that actually de- had the numbers decline drastically here in Houston. So during that 
those few years that I was on on the school board, when I left, it was like a 750 year. I think in the beginning when I was first elected, it was up to a million dollars, right? And then when I came back, I was approving these contracts for 10, 15,000 up to 30. And I think only very few schools were actually hiring core members because they didn't have the funds to hire core members then. And so, I mean, that, that was a there was a drastic change during that time. So, so when I came back in, I just, well, you know, it's not a big problem. You know, it, I've seen the numbers have really decreased um, drastically. And then they started talking about why they came to that conclusion. And then there was a talk about changing it and going back to funding it centrally versus keeping it the way it was being funded and, and Dr. Greer has changed it. So then I was invited to meet with the executive director. So I went to go meet with the executive director and I wanted to know had, you know, TFA changed their business model because anybody else would have gotten fired or or something would have happened if you went from a million up to a million dollars to a $15,000 contract a year. And no, I mean, it was the same business model except they would still they were still trying to sell it on but we have now recruited more local so now we have Houston TFA core members now we have more black and brown TFA core members so it's not the way it used to be Diana when you first started here on the school board it's changed it's it looks you know we're actually you know recruiting people here from Texas and locally from Houston so that was the only thing that had changed which was still not comforting to me because it was still the same system they were coming in and they were leaving so I told Tiffany I said Tiffany you know I cannot continue to support this contract if this is the way it's going to continue to be. The business model hasn't changed. It's still a revolving door with TFA core members. And I'm still very bothered that they are being assigned to elementary schools. Now, I will say this. I no longer had the majority of core members in District 8 when I was reelected back again. They were more spread out in the district, the few that were there. That was good. I think I, back then I had like maybe five at the most with 41 campuses. That was actually good news for me. So that they had spread out. And, I, and it was also good news that the numbers had declined in the number of TFA core members that were in existence. And I think the executive director was very worried. And that's the reason we met. And I told her, unless you change things, then, you know, I, I cannot change my opinion about them. And so she and I agreed that I said, look, we keep we we have these great career days, I said. And I noticed that in the career days, as I go around to the different high schools that we're lacking in the medical field, we're lacking in the business side. We're like, like we got officers all showing up, you know, we, we, we've taken care of certain things. Right. But we haven't been able. I said, and I know some of you core members, former teachers from Houston have moved on and they've become doctors they've become attorneys, they've become engineers. Can we get some of those core members to come and participate in our career day? And I said, you know, we, we have to change your business model. So can can you commit to that, Tiffany, um, the executive director? And she says, she says, yes, we can do that, Diana. We, I said, great. I said, so I'm going to host the very first one because I'm always one that if I'm going to throw an idea at you, then I'm going to volunteer a school that's in that was in my district back then to be the guinea pigs, right? So, so we decided to try it out and the person that was organizing it was to contact, she was supposed to provide a list of, these are a list of people that live here in Houston and this is their profession and you can reach out to them. I've already sent out an email asking for volunteers and no one was volunteering. So I told Tiffany, I said, you know, again, I'm really trying to like you guys, like this organization, but no one is volunteering to come to our career day. I'm really trying to help you all change your business model, 
by giving back even though you left, right? And she says, yes, yes. And, but it didn't work. So I, I, I supported the contract. You know, I, I continue to support it the three years that I was there. And, and the interesting thing is I actually voted for that contract in the 12 years that I was there. I voted for the TFA contract eight times, I think eight or 10 times for that contract. My first year I didn't. And then my last year I didn't. And it was the year after I had already met with the executive director asking if they can change the business model that they had here in Houston to be able to give back. If you weren't going to stay for your longer to give back in a different way um, to the community. And I saw, I gave them a chance. I saw nothing change and I voted against it. And that is what caused an explosion on social media. That's where all the threats came in. That's where all the allegations from having an affair to stealing money all came. That's where I had people showing up to board meetings, people threatening me. All but wait a minute. That sounds, like, that sounds like mafia tactics. We, we've talked about TFA being a, a mafia, but those literally sound like mafia tactics. Well, I... I I started calling them a cult. You know, it's like, oh my God, right? They, they really stick together, right? Oh yeah, no, they followed me. Anytime I had a town hall meeting, someone would show up to call me a crook. Someone would literally get in my face to challenge me on certain things, on my uh, ethics, stuff that my spouse was alleged to have done in Houston community. I mean, things, they were bringing up stuff that wasn't even true, um, at meetings just to slander my name. So the campaign started as soon as I voted for against TFA, the campaign against me to elect someone you started right then and there. And I thought, you know, it's a TFA core member. You know, I've won elections before. You know, they were a huge supporter of the former trustee and I still won. So I just thought, no big deal. And then as I started seeing how the district, my campaign manager then says, Diana, your district is not the same district that you won, you know, a few years ago. It's changed and it's changed drastically. What used to be majority, she's not even your own precinct is majority brown anymore. So it's changing. So you need to start campaigning and you need to start bragging. And one of the things that I think is sort of a downfall for my Mexican culture is that we're very humble and the things that we do, we do it because we they're the right things to do and we don't brag about it, right? We don't do it to get pats on the back. We do it because it's the right thing to do. So I never said anything that I did. It just, people just assume it happened because it was our turn, but it really didn't. And so next thing you know, there is an announcement of a Teach for America core member who I supported when I stepped down from the board. I supported um, the core member that ran against me because I thought at the time she was the, one of the better candidates. And so then she just, you know, all of a sudden there was a campaign and I have never been involved in a, in a campaign like that where it becomes a national campaign. People were phone banking from across the United States. People were coming in from across Texas to canvas. Money was coming in from all over I mean, social media, they had all these organizations just hitting us with social media campaigns on Facebook, on Twitter, on all sorts of platform. Money was coming from everywhere. And I had never seen it that way where it became a national race. I normally fund all my campaigns. I try to stay out of the 
oh, she voted for this for this reason. And I don't go out for endorsements either because I don't want anybody to ever accuse me. Oh, she voted. She voted for the Houston Federation of Teacher Pay Races because they endorsed her. I never got endorsed by the Houston Federation of Teachers because I never went out for endorsements. The LGBTQ, I never got endorsed by them because I never went out for their endorsements. I never asked for money. I wanted to use the same model I had used. I was independent and every decision that I made was going to be mine and I was going to own it because I had funded my campaign and I was doing this on my own. I never asked for not one elected official to endorse me either. So I figured I I want this way. I mean, who wouldn't want someone that's independent? But the slandering, I think it was $148,000 later compared to my $8,000. I think my, my campaign manager did the math and he said, yeah, I think they paid $8,000, $7,000 for each vote at the end of the day. Uh, My colleague, Dr. Lita, who's also running for re-election, same thing, a hundred something plus thousand dollars. Hold on a second. So did did she vote against TFA too? Yes. Dr. Lita voted against TFA every year. The two years that it's there. (laughs) So it sounds like when that became national news, TFA fired up their education reformer networks, which, you know, I, I have a, um, a, a school board member that I knew from the Bay Area. And she told me that when she was pro-charter, pro-TFA, that checks and support, just random checks would show up for her campaign from all over the United States. And that when she took a stronger stance against TFA and charter schools, that 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 spigot was turned off. So it sounds like what they did was when you made that national news and Houston took a stand on uh, Teach for America as a temp agency business model, that they pulled out all the stops to to defeat you. Is that you think that's the right characterization here? Oh, most definitely. I mean, and, and most definitely. And, and I share with my colleagues today um, who are running for reelection and I mean, of course, Ann Sung, you know, um, she knows, right? She's a former TFA core member. And she now has another core member running against her because, again, like I mentioned earlier, she's abstained from every vote. She just feels like there's a conflict there. So she has someone now that's running against her with deep pockets. And it's going to be a hard campaign. Um, at this point, Holly Villaseca, who's also another TFA core member, but she's always voted for a TFA contract has no one running against her. Trustee Santos, I think, has someone that's running against her also. I'm not I'm not 100% sure if she's signed up for yet. Also a strong supporter of TFA. I don't know if she's former TFA, though. So, um, so yeah, I mean, here the dynamics could potentially change. And, and I tell my colleagues, get ready, because you all are going to run a campaign like you've never run before. I th- I think that this story really shows an interesting landscape for how TFA works because from a policy perspective and from a political perspective, TFA is a vendor, right? So TFA is a vendor, enters into these contracts with districts, and I, I, I find it interesting but also telling and not altogether surprising that that you you went out of your way, it seems, to try to assist TFA to make what you saw was not just regional change, but to help them shift what they were focusing on to meet the needs of your district and the schools that you represented. And and it, I, I can think of no other vendor, whether 
whether from food vending or whatever it is that districts enter into contracts with that would have a conversation with a board member who says we have this need and that vendor who is interested in having the business of that board complete, not only completely ignore the request of, and, and to use their business terms, their customer to absolutely ignore that, but to engage in what, what is nothing less than a complete hostile takeover, not only of your campaign and your, your competitors running against you, but the entire board, that their, that their disposition is, we don't care what your needs are. We know better than you. Our business is smarter than yours, and we will take over this board just to grow and expand our business uh, for the purpose of making money. And as Julian said, their mission statement says nothing about teachers or teaching. It's entirely about leadership, and it's entirely about building this broader network of reformers that, in this very case, can serve as a backstop in the future. Let's say that a different region of the country is going through the same thing. They can call on their folks in Houston and and everywhere else to rally around these efforts of hostile takeovers of boards. And I tell, and then once you deviate, because I always say that, you know, Ansung who has deviated, who has not followed the, you know, the protocol. And because you haven't followed the protocol, shame on you. We're going to run somebody against you. You know, so there is no loyalty unless you reciprocate that. So because Trustee Song has chosen to vote against a contract because she personally feels like it's a conflict of interest, they hold it against her. And I would think that they would applaud her for it and say, you see, this is a prime example. This is These are our core members. This is what the TFA is about. No, it's shame on her for voting against the TFA contract. And I will say this too, James. I... I had that conversation with the TFA executive director and I shared it with no one, no one, right? I, I never mentioned it, never mentioned it until accusing me of a lot of things. And then I, I posted on social media, look, I met with the executive director and I asked her to change things just a little bit in HISD so that we can warm up, build this relationship that that she thought was great and I didn't, was disagreeing with. And she didn't. It, she still continued with the same business model they've been doing for 30 plus years. And so, but before that, I, you know, and even today, you know, I tell people, I said, you know, I met with the executive director, you know, because I really wanted this relationship to work, but in order for it to work, it had to be a win-win for everybody and not just for TFA. And um, which is what you don't hear about. Nobody hears about the conversation that I had to try to salvage a little bit of TFA because nobody cares because they they believe that they've perfected it and this is the way it is. And as you know, we can just unelect you and then boom, that opinion of yours is gone and we will continue doing what we're doing today. So, I, you know, I want to thank you for for joining us today. Uh, this episode's a little longer than we usually go because there is just so much information that, quite frankly, uh, is not available to the public. Um, we we covered a lot of themes today uh, that that we haven't in the first twenty three episodes of of this podcast. But to conclude, I, I would just like to to ask you a, a question. You know, you voted for Teach for America for eight years, and then 
you tried to work with them on their model and you you looked at the data and you, you made a decision. So I remember uh, hearing the former attorney general under Barack Obama, he he once said that your position is more important than your position. And and so I want to ask you the hard question. This this hard question is if you if you had to say something to a you know a lawmaker or a policymaker or, or, or a school board member or or someone who is considering running for one of those offices, uh, the folks who are really essential in our democracy about Teach for America, if you could just do that in, in one minute, what would you tell them about their role as a policymaker and, and taking a careful look at what TFA is doing? I always tell people, you have to vote what's right for your community, even if that gets you unelected. You're there to represent your community. And if this vote that I took back then to no longer have TFA in HISD cost me the, an, an election, then so be, you know, so be. I'm okay with that, you know, that that happened. But that doesn't change the vote. I would still do it the same way because we are elected to represent our constituency. And on the school board, we are elected to do what's right for kids, even if it, that means we upset some adults. Just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for not only sharing your insight about your time on the board, but I think revealing for our listeners the the sort of methods and ends that TFA can go to to try to impact the change that it wants to see and that seems to me uh, to be a change that is um, that does not take into consideration local school boards or local teachers or the needs of students as as we have come to know but rather forces itself into situations and pushes anybody out of its way that um, that represents not not just a threat to them but even the the mere suggestion of some type of update or change to how they operate represents such a threat to them that uh, they would have to mobilize a national effort um, to replace them. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 24 of the Truth for America podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a joy.